Okay, if you don't have a Bible, there are some handouts at the front of Revelation chapter 18. That might be helpful this morning. It's a long, big reading. It's going to account for about a third of the whole message time. But it's helpful to be tracking along with. Chapter 17 and 18 in Revelation are long chapters that focus on this woman who is called Babylon the Great. And we learned last week that that refers to a city, and in the first century context that was Rome, but it's this symbolic depiction of a prostitute on a beast, which is a political power. And it's really important to remember that as we move into Revelation 18, what is actually being talked about. If you understand, well, part of what's important in understanding the entire biblical story is that there are sort of like these, you know how like in superhero movies, there are these arch villains. There are these villains that just keep repeating themselves and they're like the arch nemesis. And that's kind of what Babylon is throughout the Old and into the New Testament. The first time we're exposed to Babylon is in the building of the Tower of Babel or Babylon. Yankee, that's the uh, tower that was built uh, in the capital city. And in Gen- Genesis 11.4, the call of the elite in Babylon was this. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves because otherwise we're going to be scattered all over the face of the earth. And in the biblical story that follows, Babylon becomes a symbol of any society, any empire, any nation that is built upon self-glorification, self-interest, exploitation, and enslavement. And so some of the judgments that are levied against Babylon also get levied against the empires of Tyre and the nation of Edom and then Rome. And what we're seeing here in Revelation is this great villain of Babylon and what Babylon stands for, symbolically represented by a woman on a beast. And I think the most helpful way to think about it is not so much that, oh, this is referring to something very, very specific that is only a one-time event, either in the past or in the future, but rather as a recurring role that different actors, in a sense, play from the inside. So you think about the Joker. The Joker is Batman's arch villain. But if I said to you, like, who's the real Joker? Now, people would have their opinions. They would say, well, I love um, this person's depiction of the Joker. For me, they are the Joker. And other people would say, no, 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 no. Like, I, I appreciate the work they did there, but uh, uh, Jackie and Phoenix, that was masterful because of X, Y, and Z. And when the Bible talks about Babylon or judgments against Babylon, it's not speaking about a specific actor. It's speaking about the Joker, Babylon is a character that in the drama of God continues to manifest in new ways. There's slight nuances, but the overall, um, uh, the overall uh, kind of presentation, manifestation of values is the same. So in the same way that Joker, played by different people, is an archetype that is always fighting the Batman... Babylon is a symbol. And so what we're seeing in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 is God saying, history is not going to just keep going in this cosmic struggle of good versus evil, 
the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Babylon versus the kingdom of God, there's going to be a final and serious judgment on Babylon the Great. I'm going to invite Grace Wilson up to read Revelation 18. She's going to read the entire chapter. It's a long chapter. So that's why I encourage you. It's not going to be on the screen. You can follow along in a Bible or with the uh, the notes. But I want you to do something specific as you're listening, as you're reading. And I'm going to give you a few moments after the reading to talk amongst people around you. And that is this. As you read it, I want you to listen and pay attention to why Babylon the Great is singled out for judgment. There are two full chapters in Revelation that talk about judgment coming to Babylon the Great. So whatever Babylon the Great is or does, however Babylon the Great manifests its values into the world, it's something that God says, I'm going to devote two chapters in Revelation to highlighting how heinous this is and he actually invites his people to celebrate the overthrow of this kind of great villain. And so as you're listening, as you're reading, just underline, you know, mark it in your mind's eye. What is it about this woman, this city, that is so evil that God specifically says he won't even, not only will he destroy it and bring it to ruin, but he will invite God's people to celebrate its destruction. Okay, Grace, why don't you come up? After this, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, It has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown weary from her sensuality and excess. Then I heard another voice from heaven come out of her. My people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way she also paid, and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mix a double portion for her. As much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see grief. For this reason, her plagues will come in just one day, death and grief and famine. 
She will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. The kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality and shared her sensual and excessive ways will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke from her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo any longer, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour and grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriage, and slaves, human slaves. The fruit you craved has left you. All your splendor and glamorous things are gone. They will never find them again. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with golds, jewels and pearls for a single hour. Such fabulous wealth was destroyed. And every shipmaster, seafarer, and sailor, and all who do business by sea stood far off as they watched the smoke from her burning, and they kept crying out, Who was like the great city? They threw dust on their heads, and they kept crying out, weeping and mourning, Whoa, whoa, the great city, where are all those who have ships on the sea become rich from her wealth? For in a single hour she was destroyed. Rejoice over her heaven, and you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced on her the judgment she passed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, In this way Babylon the great city will be thrown down violently and never be found again. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a mill will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. And the voice of a groom and bride will never be heard in you again. All this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. In her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all those slaughtered on the earth. Thanks, Grace. It was awesome. So if you're having a, a difficult time envisioning this vision, this scene, right? I mean, we've all seen that by now, the pictures of, 
Linton, BC before and after the fire, right? Like on the Google Maps thing, it's, it's gone viral. Like we've now experienced we firsthand a city, small town that was there. And then within about 28 minutes was completely on fire and completely destroyed. And they're doing a complete rebuild. And that's the picture that we're supposed to see in our mind's eye. But that is explicitly in Revelation 18 described as the judgment of God for a very specific reason. So take about 30 seconds, just turn to someone around you and just share with them what you noticed about or, or what you highlighted as maybe not the reason you know, I think there is one there, but a reason. Just share that with people around you, and then I'm going to ask for some input. Go ahead. Don't be shy. There's no wrong answers. I mean, there are technically, but I'm just saying that to make you feel comfortable sharing. Just... Okay, let's regather. That's good interaction. Love to see that. Okay, does anyone want to share their thoughts? What, what, do, what do you feel like was uh, emphasized in this chapter as the kind of bottom line reason for judgment? Anybody? Everyone's scared. I totally get at this point being scared to say something. What's that? Immorality. Immorality, yep. But there's a, a kind of a specific manifestation, a specific, um, I mean, definitely, but it's not just kind of a broad sweeping. Uh, it's a, it's a, this chapter doesn't paint with a very broad brush, there is some specificity to the nature of the immorality. Miriam? Yeah, so for those who are watching online, um, someone said the, the immorality of excess and wanting more and more. And I think that's absolutely bang on. In verses 3 and verses 7 and verses 9, the same kind of end judgment is pronounced, the same evaluation of sensuality and excess. And depending on your translation, there's very different ways that you can translate this. I mean, not wildly different, but the reason why it's challenging is because the word that is used for excess means that. It means um, excessive, we might say hyper, like, you know, hyperinflation is like extra, super, super fast inflation. But the word that is translated sensuality is a dynamic translation from the word dynamis, ironically enough, which is directly, uh, d direct translation would be like, uh, we, it's from the word that we would get dynamite, but usually when it shows up in the scripture, it's translated as power. So literally it means, uh, it's calling out Babylon for their power excess. Again, we would say like hyper excess. 
Imagine a person taken in by greed and then kind of greed on steroids. That's what's being called out here. So the, the language of greed, that word, doesn't actually come up in the text because Revelation often isn't direct with those things. It's using symbolic language to shock us awake to the reality of what does greed look like? Not just it's bad to be greedy, but what does greed look like? And there's greed on two levels. There's definitely a sensual, uh, self-seeking, self-interested pleasure. But what, what gets re-emphasized throughout the chapter is this opulent level of wealth that's exploitative and damaging towards other people. Um, the reason why it gets paired with sexual immorality, the word there is porneia, from which we get pornography, but in a first century context, porneia was any sexual activity outside of a covenantal commitment of marriage. Um, and if you think about, like from a biblical worldview, the reason why porneia, sexual immorality, is wrong, is, is it, it's because if you're not in a covenantal commitment with someone where you're committing to holistically care and love for them, but you want to engage with them sexually, the scripture would say, no matter how you dress that up, you're basically using the other person because you're not as a whole person committing to caring for them. You're wanting to extract sexual pleasure from them. They might consent, you might consent, but biblically, you're still using that other person. And there's a kind of economic sexual immorality where you let go of a commitment to um, facilitate economic transactions in a way that cares and supports other people. And instead, your goal is, well, what's the bottom line? What's in it for me? What do I get? And you don't have to live very long before you work for someone like that. Someone in your family manifests that. That temptation rises up in your own heart. Right? People are like, I gotta get mine. I'm gonna get mine. Other people's problem to deal with what, you know, that's, I'm, I'm, am I my brother's keeper? No. I'm after my own bread. I'm doing my own thing. Let other people flail and drown if need be. So it's this kind of power excessiveness, this greed, but again, not just like, oh, I'd like to have like some extra money, like, greed on steroids that God is saying Babylon has always manifested this core value and it's sick and it's wrong and it's very close to the heart of evil and I am going to judge it capital J one day if you think about the last if you're not sure well I hope you're convinced that there is an economic greed thing going on but if you're not Notice, in the back half of 18, it's the merchants that mourn Babylon's loss. They're the ones who are sad. It's not like the little people. It's the merchants. It's the people who are like, oh, I can't hawk my wares anymore, my gold, like all these opulent, all these spices, this, this high-level, high-priced high goods. What am I going to do? Like, they're not sad because Babylon's being judged. They're like, there goes my economic gravy train. They're heartbroken for the judgment that's falling on Babylon, but not 
for any reason other than, well, this is going to impact me economically. I've grown wealthy from participating in the system that exploits some people and leverages all these economic advantages to people at the top. And now I see that crumbling around me and it's like, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do? Talking about greed is a very challenging and fascinating thing. I think I've said this before in a sermon a number of years ago. Um, but the sin of greed, Timothy Keller points out in one of his sermons, is really, really fascinating because it's different from almost every other sin, and especially some of the big sins that you encounter in Scripture. Because most people don't have an interior mechanism that prompts them when they're living into greed. Most people don't live as if they're greedy. So Timothy Keller talks about, he was doing a study on the seven deadly sins during the midweek, and he was talking to his wife about it, and she said, oh, your lowest attendance is going to be the week on greed. And he didn't think much of it, but, you know, lust, packed house, right? Uh, envy, packed house. When he got to greed... Not, you know, people still showed up, but very few. Uh, a, a massive, massive percentage drop. And he said, I walked away from that and I thought, what's going on? And then he said, quote, I actually realized that I could never recall any person in 21 years of ministry in Manhattan, New York City, ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself, Pastor. I think I'm worried that my greedy lust for more money is actually damaging my spiritual walk with God. I'm concerned that my greedy lust for money is damaging my relationship with my family and friends. I'm, 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 I'm worried that my greedy lust for money is damaging my witness as a Christian. And he said, the weird thing about greed is that it hides itself from the victim. And the money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. And that's why I think in verse 23 it says, all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. You just kind of get caught up in it, right? It's like a spell gets put on you. And you're just like making money and then things go well and then you collude in some ways and you leverage certain advantages that aren't available to everybody, but you know, not a huge deal. And then you fast forward the script and you have this economic exploitation that's occurring. And yet you look around you and you're like, well, this is kind of the way things are done. Like, it's normalized, or at least normalized in my circles. And, and even if someone might accuse you of being greedy, you're like, well, I couldn't possibly be greedy because I can think of 10 other people who make more money than I do. So there's a sorcery that can overtake and has overtaken not just Babylon, but the kings of the earth and the merchants who have been, in a sense, seduced by this lure of ever-increasing economic advantage. And I think that's important for us to hear because the seductive spell of economic exploitation, consumptive self-interest, excessive hoarding of wealth is incredibly strong. And Revelation in 17 and 18 say it actually lies very, 
very close to the heart of an anti-Christ way of life. Now, we have to hit the pause button here and remind ourselves what is not being condemned here is pleasure or power or even wealth. Those are good gifts from God because they can all be leveraged in certain contexts and in certain ways for the blessing of other people, the blessing for the community. So what's not being condemned here is money or wealth per se. It's greed. It's power excess. It's becoming addicted. Right? They're, st- they're starting to kind of realize a lot of the uh, bankers and, and people at the highest levels of stock trading have what they call like wealth addiction. It's like a game for them, right? Money is about keeping score of who's winning. And the, you lose all sense of, you lose any internal calibration of like, why are you doing this? And it just becomes a race to the bottom of how much could I possibly make so that I can justify my existence, so that I can show and prove myself to other people, so that I can have more and more and more and more. It's a picture. What's being condemned is a life where your waking thoughts are centered around money and how to have more. Not in order to bless other people through, maybe, take care of your responsibilities and bless other people, but so that you can have an ever-escalating access to whatever you set your eyes on. It's this idol of kind of self and money that says, I want to have access so that I don't have to worry about restraint. That's the sin of Babylon, is greed and hyper-greed. And we should take that as a warning for all of us. And not just say, well, I can think of these people who are richer than me. They definitely have a problem with greed. They got to where they are because at one point they were where you are, maybe economically. The green-eyed monster of envy and greed can take any of our hearts. So that's her sin. But how does it warp Babylon's perception? Well, let's talk about her glory. And I don't mean her glory in a good way, like this is what makes Babylon amazing. It's what does she glory in? We all glory in something. That means to put ultimate sense of celebration and, and, and um, weight in something. Christians are called to put that ultimate weight in God so that everything else finds its place. But Babylon says, no, I've put my weight in, in wealth and the power that I've experienced wealth can give me. In verse 7 it says, the judgment says, as much as, much as she glorified herself and indulged her power excessive ways, Give her that much torment and grief, for she says in her heart, I sit as queen, I'm not a widow, I will see no grief. So she's accumulated so much economic advantage and so much wealth, it's warped into a sense of self-worship. She glories in herself. I'm the thing that I've centered my life around. I'm the thing that I celebrate. And she says, I sit as queen. I'm not a widow. Meaning, it's not like there was a king and I was second in charge. I'm not a widow. I'm queen. I'm in charge. I won't see grief. There's nothing in this world that can touch me because I have a fortress of wealth around me. I sit in power. There's no threat, internal or external, natural or supernatural, a person or entity that can threaten me. It's this picture of grotesque 
self-worship and complete uh, idolatry of the self and a complete numbness to what power and advantage is supposed to do, which is prompt you to say, God, how do I leverage this to your glory and to the blessing of people around me? But that doesn't occur to her. She's like, this is all about me. This is for me. And there's this insatiable lust to just have more. And so what, what's being compared here, you know, what, what would God's vision for a city to be? What would God want for a nation? Well, he, he makes it very clear in the Old and the New Testament. You are not to be a people, church, built around greed, where we're all kind of angling to maximize our own self-interest. We're to be a people of generosity, of grace, where when we have more than we need, after taking care of our God-given responsibilities, we look for, our first pivot isn't to, oh, well, I've got extra money. What do I want to spend that on for myself? Again, enjoying some of your wealth and money, not a bad thing. Taking pleasure in recreating and going out to dinner and going on vacation, not a bad thing. But we have to hold it with the tension of that's not the first pivot that we make when we have excess funds. We have to be thinking about the broader kingdom of God. Because if we don't, the greed monster will just naturally say like, you've earned it. Like, what about you? What about you? What about you? A little bit more? One vacation? Yeah, but two. Let's go. Three, maybe. Bigger vacations. Bigger house. More more engines. More, whatever it is. And if we see that happening around us, it will become normalized. And God says, no, I want a people who understand what stewardship is. See, Babylon has no sense of stewardship. Because when you understand that your life is a stewardship, a, f- a few things fall into place. Number one, stewardship presumes a higher authority. A steward is someone who is tasked with managing an estate while someone is absent. And God isn't absent from our lives, but he has given us a certain level of agency and stewardship over your body, your energy, your resources, time, energy, talents, your wealth, whether it's meager or much. And God expects you to understand and to operate from the perspective that says, everything that I have isn't mine in the sense that I just always pivot to like, well, what do I want to do today? How do I want to use this money? What do I think would be a great use of my time? We start with saying, how do I honor God in this area? I'm a steward over my family. I'm a steward over this church as a pastor. I'm a steward over the money that's in my bank account. And that automatically keeps pulling me into recognizing these aren't mine in a conventional sense of thinking about it. They've been entrusted to me and I'm accountable to God. And I'm accountable to use it for God's mission. And I'm accountable to be accountable for it. And... I have to make sure that I'm in an ongoing way looking at these different spheres of what God has entrusted to me and saying, is this going well? Or have I let greed or self-interest begin to take over in this area? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is writing to an early Christian community and he's writing specifically about sexuality in the body But he says this, he says, don't you understand that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, 
And then here's the key about stewardship, and it applies to all of life, not just our sexuality. You are not your own. If you're a Christian, you've given your life to Jesus. That, th- th- those shouldn't be understood as like just the right words to say to become a Christian. You have given your life to Jesus. You have given ultimate authority of your life to Jesus, and that means you must glorify God with your body, with your life. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. There might be things that appeal to you at the level of sexual engagement. You don't have a right to just enter into those. There might be things that appeal to you when you say, when I have this much in the bank account, oh, I totally just want to, I, I just need to buy this, go here. You don't have the right to just make unilateral decisions. You have to at least be praying about it. You have to at least be saying, God, is there a way that I can use this in some, even some of it, to bless other people? I have to be very careful as a Christian to not let little inroads of self-interest, those weeds, overgrow the garden of generosity. And to that end, God calls his people out of Babylon. Did you notice that in the text? And that's why I think it's important to read this text as a current reality, not like, well, this Babylon refers to like Rome back in the first century. This doesn't apply to our lives. Like It's like ancient history. Or it's going to apply to someone in the future. Tribulation, Mark of the Beast, all this stuff. There's going to be a Neo-Babylon that rises. Like They're going to have to deal with this. Oof, pity them. This is right now. Because there's always someone playing the Joker. There's always someone playing that part. There's always someone playing the villain. It's going to look a little different. But there's always someone or a constellation of institutions that are saying, you know what the most important thing in life is? You. And what you want. And what you deserve. And what you are entitled to. Don't worry, but don't let anybody tell you how to live. You do you. You live life on your terms. You're not accountable to anybody except yourself. If you hear those voices consistently around you, you're living in Babylon. And I think we're living in Babylon in a lot of ways. And God says in verse 4, come out. I don't want you to be a part of this way of thinking. And this is a call to holiness. And not holiness is like, well, I avoid very, very bad things, so I'm a holy person. But biblical holiness, which is separation from worldliness to righteousness before God. Worldliness meaning a pattern of living that doesn't acknowledge or attempt to honor God. So it's not about not participating in culture. It's not about not participating in society. It's separating from any pattern within society, within your friendship circle, within your workplace, within your industry, that is living into this kind of greed and exploitation and excessive self-interest. Living with no thought given to honoring God in all things big and small. And so to come out of Babylon... And I mentioned this last week. It's kind of like the classic um, platitude and, and, and ambition of being in the world, but not of it. We're obviously in Nelson. We're in Canada. We're in the Western world. We're in a certain economic system. That's inevitable. We can't literally extract ourselves from those things. But we have to not be formed by them. And we have to not just say, yeah, this is just the way it is. Like, it's fine. And just look around and say, well, everyone else seems to be fine with this. So how does God want us to operate within a Babylonian system of self-interest? 
And separating from the world, worldliness has been contentious for Christians. Because some Christians have said, yeah, we're actually going to extract ourselves from society. We're going to go create a commune over here and create a perfect little Christian bubble. But I think if you read the New Testament, there's no call there, right? Think about the book of Ephesians. Many of the books in the Bible, it's like, to those in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus, there's an acknowledgement, you're in Christ, but you also are Ephesians. He doesn't say, you should not be, you should not live in Ephesus. That is a very, very bad, bad place. Get out of there. He says, no, your identity is not rooted in being an Ephesian. It's rooted in being in Jesus. Now go into Ephesus and be a light in darkness. Live for Jesus in a way that causes people to say, this person is not with the script. Like this person's not following the same script that we're all following. Dog eat dog world exploitation. Do what you gotta do. This person is marching to the beat of a different drummer. Yeah, we should be. We've gotta come out. We have to take this seriously. And again, I wanna underscore something that's probably uncomfortable for us. It would be easier if this text was inviting us to come out of systems of terrible sexual immorality. Whatever these really bad, 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 um, sinful things that we conjure in our mind's eye. But again, almost no one remembers that the fundamental call to come out is a call to come out from excessive greed and self-interest. That's actually the root of it. And I've been a part of Christian circles where people are like, in a sense, I've come out of Babylon because I don't swear, I don't drink, I don't, uh, I totally honor God with my body, I'm sexually pure, but they are super, super economically self-interested. And generosity, from my experience with them, seems like the farthest. I mean, that seems like a big, <laughs> there's a huge gap there. God is saying, you get out of Babylon in many ways, you have to commit to many things, but fundamentally you have to commit to saying, I'm going to live into a different script, into a different fundamental story, and that is a story of generosity. See, vices are cured by their opposite. So to get out of Babylon is not the same thing as saying, okay, Jeff, I hear you, I won't be as greedy. That's a terrible way to try and combat sin. You will not combat sin by simply trying to do less of it. You do the opposite of it. Vices are cured by their opposite, which is the virtue. And the virtue to avarice or greed or power excess is generosity. Instead of taking more than I need, I'm going to reflexively challenge myself to give more than I'm comfortable with. Give more of my time, more of my energy, more of my wealth. Look for ways to leverage those things for the benefit of other people even if after the exchange, after the involvement, I say, well, I didn't really get that much out of that. That's okay. Because all that isn't meant for you. It's not meant to always have a feedback loop to, oh, I got super blessed by this. Sometimes you will give away money and God won't repay that money through some kind of miracle because that money wasn't for you. But we've got to lean into generosity, probably in a way here in the Western world that is hard for us to reckon with. How do you solve the problem of greed, though? How do you actually... I think what you'll find is if you really, really try to say, yep, Jeff, I'm going to like not be greedy. I hear you. This is convicting. 
I want to learn to be more generous. I, I can already think of a few ways that I can lean into a bit more generosity. I'm going to start doing that. I, I honestly believe, I've tried this myself, that will work for a time, but it will actually peter out and you'll find yourself just getting sucked into the status quo around you. You need something more than sincere willpower and focus to see this through. I think you actually need to be coming back to the heart of Christianity, which is the gospel. And I want to quote from Keller again because I think he really nails it in terms of how do we make sure that excessive self-interest and financial greed and material greed doesn't encroach and overtake our lives. He says the only way you can do it is not to remember, but to keep remembering and pondering that Jesus was the king who gave up all of his treasure in heaven to come for you. And he leveraged all of his power for you in order to make you his treasure, in order to make us his treasured people. And Keller writes, when you see him dying on the cross to make you his treasure, that will make him yours. And money will just cease. It will just begin to fade in its influence in your life. It will no longer become the significance or wealth. It won't become the foundation of, of your security. And as you see what Jesus has done for you, you will want to imitate that in your life. You will look for ways to self-sacrificially be generous to others. And to, to the degree to which you grasp that gospel truth, money will have no dominion over you. And so he says, there's no shortcut to get out of greed. But he says, just keep thinking upon Jesus' costly grace until it turns you into a generous person. See, Jesus wasn't the king who said, I'm the king. I'll never know grief. I have a wall of wealth and privilege and advantage around me. Nothing can touch me. He didn't leverage his power and his authority to avoid loss and sorrow and pain and death. He does the opposite, right? He goes to the cross. And on the cross, he says, I am the king who will actually enter into the deepest grief to make you my treasure. And when you see that, you can be set free from greed's power. And when that happens, one of the evidences that it's at work in your life is that you're slowly and surely being propelled and compelled into a life that is holy, that is distinctive, that is devoted to God. And then it's filled with the pleasure of generously serving other people and loving other people and giving and investing in other people for their benefit and for God's glory. Let's pray. God is your people. We need to hear this lesson. And I pray I need to hear it first and foremost, God. Do a work in my own heart to see the areas where self-interest and... Well, to see the line where just being a good, responsible person has maybe tipped over into too much calculated or strategic self-interest. I want to be a generous person, God. I want to be a generous Christian. I want our church to overflow with generosity, not just in terms of money, God, but time, investment in each other, to be generous with our talents. Teach us, God, to walk in your kingdom, to follow you out of Babylon, 
into a better script, a better story, a better city. In Jesus' name, amen.